Morning, everyone. Another episode of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. We've got Mark Allred from the Black and Gold Hockey Pod coming on to do the postmortem series, talking about the Bruins and what comes next. But in today's open, we're going to start with the Jake Allen trade and really what that trade represents in terms of value, roster building, and how GMs, they really just aren't that predatory. So you look at it from the St. Louis Blues perspective, and it's pretty obvious they're almost nearly completely capped out, and they've got to re-sign their captain, Alex Petrangelo. They don't have the money to do it. And you could talk about the sins of the past, some of the contracts they shouldn't have signed that got them into this situation. But the reality is they're here now. And so above all else, they need to clear that cap space. And they were able to unload $4.3 million in Jake Allen, a guy who he was very important to their team. I think you saw in these playoffs, you absolutely need two goalies. And Jake Allen was the more consistent of the two, maybe all season. But ultimately, they're committed to the guy who got them to the cup. And that's Jordan Biddington. So they'll be going forward with him and maybe someone else in the system. I remember there was a time when Billy Husso was the next guy for the St. Louis Blues. Or maybe they play the game of musical chairs and they find themselves a half-decent backup uh, on the market for a lot cheaper and they can cobble this whole thing together but they've got a little bit more space to try to sign Petrangelo and just on the Petrangelo front it's a, it sure does seem weird that they were able to get everyone else signed to contracts but not him arguably the most important piece this is your captain here and he is the franchise player you've got to have those two pillars on defense it sure seems as evident from these playoffs that having two pairings built around outstanding defensemen is the way to go and losing him would uh, would be devastating and i wonder if the fact that he's not signed is just there they just have been holding the line at seven and a half million where ryan o'reilly and vladimir tarasenko are the highest paid guys on the team at that number and they're not willing to go above that number but i mean you look at some of the contracts that are out there roman yossi just got over nine million uh, earlier this season so it would make sense to at least approach eight and apparently they haven't even gotten to that level yet so understanding that it's a flat cap scenario all the same they they should be going that high but uh I think, again, this is neither here nor there uh, on the Petrangelo front. I, I think it's pretty straightforward what the idea for them was and how this is a win to get anything of value while dumping salary is a win. But from the Montreal Canadiens perspective, you know, there's a lot of thought that there's an opportunity cost here. You know, they've got this amount of cap space, and if you're going to use it in a trade, then you should be using it in a predatory fashion. You know, you should be extracting as much maximal value as you possibly can. Do what the Carolina Hurricanes have been doing. Strip out like phenomenal players for very little and dump bad contracts back or steal, you know, just to, just take, just basically buy a first round pick in the Patrick Marlowe uh, cap dump scenario and, and I hypothesize that maybe the Blues and, and Canadians could hook up on such a type deal for Alex Steen but as it turns out they've gone a different route and kind of met each other's needs here and the reality is that the Canadians they've been relying too heavily on carry price you hope when you sign a goaltender to 10 million dollars a year that you can rely on them the way that teams relied on their goaltenders back in the 90s and the early 2000s. But that's just not the reality of the game today. You cannot be playing your goaltender 65-plus starts a season and expect them to 
sustain excellent play. It's it's very rare that you can do that. And so this season, Price was he was perfectly mediocre in his 58 starts, but that's a 67 start pace. And he's not at the age where you can expect him to be able to sustain that. So they've brought in a reliable backup, one that has shown quite capable of handling that 1B responsibility. Give him 40% of the starts and he's going to be phenomenal for you, especially in a very strong defensive structure. And I think that that is exactly the type of game that the Montreal Canadiens play. So I think that, you know, they've done some scouting and they suspect that this would be a very strong fit for them. Of course, teams have made horrible gambles on goalies in the past, but Allen's only on a one-year deal. And one of the things that Mark Bergevin really highlighted was that the cap space that they have this summer, it's kind of a one-time only ticket. They're looking at their entire top line from this past season with Gallagher and Tatar and Deneau. They're all unrestricted free agents after this coming season. So the cap space is going to dry up real quick. And I think that it's very smart on their part to go out and buy just a one-year deal and kind of bridge the gap and put forth a really strong goaltending tandem. I think that they easily could have just rode with Caden Primo and skimped a little bit on the cost of that backup position. But the reality is, does the coach trust the youngster? He was pretty good in his two starts. His two starts were basically the only two good starts that the Canadians got out of their backups this season. Their backups gave them 13 starts, and they went 4-6-3. and three, And Primo's overtime win, 3-2 uh, win, was the only time that they allowed less than three goals in a game. So their goal their backup goalie situation was dire they absolutely had to do something the coach didn't trust their backups and that's why they rode price into the dirt and it's probably why a team that controlled shot share so voraciously they weren't able to get to the playoffs because their goalies were either bad or worn out and so they outshoot these teams and still find a way to lose the game and then when they were fresher come playoff time you saw the effort that they could put forth against the penguins or at least this is the strategy that they think will work for them give price a lesser workload and he's going to be more effective and Allen's a guy that they can lean on if price gets injured or goes through a rut and that's the other thing price has dealt with a lot of injuries so having three goalies in the system is fantastic and if the ahl can ever get up and running again then primo's going to get reps down in the ahl and that's going to make him a better goalie going forward i do think there's a whole conversation to be had about us not trusting goalies early enough in their careers to maximize that window where their reflexes are absolutely on point but you also have to find that window where their reflexes match up with their pattern recognition ability to the point where they're just going to be fantastic uh, elite elite players and it is probably coming earlier than we expect for these guys but that's another whole conversation but this idea that the Canadians, oh, they didn't fully take advantage of this situation. Well, maybe, but they also have to realize that they're going to be talking with these GMs more than once. This is not the first time that Mark Bergevin and Doug Armstrong have done trades. And if you're out there just looking for the predatory deal, then it might be the last time you ever deal with that person. So they're looking for the win-win. And in this situation, it's the Blues have to dump salary. And the Canadians have salary for one year. So it's a fit. And they filled a need on their roster that they really, really could use. Uh, as much as spending over $14 million a year on your goaltending room is not advisable, you don't compound the mistake of giving price an obscene amount of money with another mistake by not sufficiently filling the backup role and then you ultimately get negative value out of your investment so 
Think of it like buying a house and thinking that it's going to be perfectly good to go. And then all of a sudden you find out that there's all this stuff you have to redo. You got to do the flooring. The the plumbing keeps acting up. The shingles, it turns out they were done way too long ago. And that the roof's got to be redone. And if you don't put in all this time and upkeep, then the whole thing's going to be worth less than it was when you started. So two wrongs don't make a right. You need two goalies in today's day and age. And if you spent way too much on your one goalie, it doesn't change the fact that you're going to need a second one to back him up. And while the price of a backup 4.3 million is a little bit on the steep side, it's a price that they could afford for this season. And it's also one, yeah, they could have gone out into free agency and just opted for the best option that they could find. And maybe it's at a cheaper salary and maybe it's a slightly better player. But the reality is they have to get that player to sign. And I don't know how many players are going to want to sign for only one season, but it's it's fairly rare. The Oilers went this route and ended up with Mike Smith, and he had about one good month and then absolutely imploded come playoff time. And so you really got to ask yourself if the free agency route was the way to go. Instead, they were able to make a trade, and the player is contractually obligated to come play for them and so he will do so and in that sense it's a win because the Canadians get a player they know they're getting a seat in the game of goalie musical chairs this summer whereas they couldn't have guaranteed themselves that by going the free agency route and what if the cost ends up being more or what if they get left without a seat they couldn't take that gamble and they also have this vast surplus of picks they weren't going to use all of the 16 17 picks or whatever it was that they had so the cost of a third rounder to get an effective nhl player is very very low and while that third rounder it could turn into a very good player the odds of that happening are also low and they have enough draft capital where they could still find some gems in this draft so i don't think that they've spited themselves all that much they didn't absolutely maximize the advantageous situation that they were in but they didn't do so last summer and they ended up being a bit of a joke which we talk about on the podcast how sebastian ajo just basically used them to sign him to an offer sheet that the Hurricanes knew we're going to match. And so they just kind of got dummied into being having their cap space used while they didn't actually take full advantage of it. So I think in this situation, they made themselves better. They're a better team today for having added Jake Allen. And if that's not what you're trying to do as a GM, I don't know what you're supposed to be doing. And so while there is a little bit of wait you're saying that the canadians have made themselves better by bringing in this expensive backup and the blues have made themselves better by clearing cap space how like now they don't have their backup how does that add up and the reality is that because of the blues sins they had to make this dump and they have to opt into the game of goalie musical chairs or they have to opt to go with the internal option that they can't be sure will bear fruit because of the mistakes that they've made. But the reality is that having that tentpole franchise defenseman is way more important than the backup goalie position is. And so for the Blues, getting rid of the luxury item that is their backup goalie makes sense while for the canadians they have proven that they don't make the playoffs without that backup goalie option so that's my rant i hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast okie doke another episode of the steve laidlaw podcast uh, we're continuing the playoff post-mortems series for the nhl and i'm pleased to be joined 
by Mark Allred from Black and Gold Hockey, and he's on the Black and Gold Pod. He's uh, he's in high demand, so we really appreciate him coming on the pod to uh, to break down what I I must imagine is a disappointing uh, end to the Bruins season. Uh, Mark, how are you today? I'm good, Steve. Thank you very much for having me, and hope all is well with you and family up in the uh, the great province of Ontario. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, it's it's fantastic up here. We're uh, we're a little bit secluded from from everything else that that's going on. We're we're kind of in our own little bubble here. So it uh, it's not been business as usual, but it's certainly been a more tolerable pace than I I, I think what uh, people in larger centers are dealing with. Mark, uh, before we kind of dive into the theme, I just I want to know like what was your what was your experience watching this team throughout? this season did you have the highest of expectations uh yeah absolutely i mean just going having this team uh go into mid-june uh last year and and ultimately losing the stanley cup to the st louis blues um and then what happened over the summer and, and training camp, what, what Bruce Cassidy did to this team to invigorate them, because normally uh, it, the trend is when you win a Stanley Cup or you go that far, uh, your next season is, it, it's usually, you know, late December, mid-December, late December, early January, you really get in gear and you really start to uh, gain, uh, you know, injuries, uh, you, people coming back from injuries, players, and so on. And um, and what what I saw was that the team was ready to go. They were on a mission, and they started off the the 2019-20 campaign uh, really hot. And uh, and I, it was just something that we, as Bruins fans uh, and Bruins writers, uh, haven't seen in a long time. And um, but then you know coming coming down to uh, capturing a hundred point season and and shutting out the Philadelphia Flyers who were absolutely red hot and and on a twelve game winning streak uh, to the to the COVID shutdown it was just uh, it was disappointing uh, to have it end like that but um, and and without any any you know we we didn't know if hockey was ever going to return but I think that that was, that was what happened to this Bruins team was that it, that was, if we were still going, if there was no COVID, I think this team would have been much more prepared because they were in the day-to-day process of, 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 of working together and so on. When you have four or five months off and then you jump right back into things, I think that, I don't think that many of the members were all bought in on this bubble system and away from families. So I just don't think that everybody was, was totally committed to this. And, and it's unfortunate, but as a, as a Bruins fan, I, I just have to go with the year and how crappy it was and how, you know, people's lives have been so affected by it that I'm, I'm ultimately giving them a pass. But let me tell you, Steve, if this happened, any regular playoffs without COVID, I'd be a little more upset. You really wonder at some point someone's going to write the tell-all book about what teams really were ready for the bubble experience and, and what teams weren't. And you could completely forgive any team that wasn't ready for it because no one really knew whether they were seriously going to be able to come back and what the conditions were and if it would work once you got there. And just the psychological impact that everyone was going through. But um, I just wonder this season, it it really reminded me for the Bruins of what, uh, what Nashville did in 2018, right? They, they surprise us and go all the way to the cup final in 2017 and lose to the Penguins, but then they, they come back and they, they rip through the NHL. They win the president's trophy and then they had to play what was probably the other best team in the league in the Winnipeg Jets and those teams punched each other out in an epic seven game series that is still one of my favorite series from the past five seasons. I wonder if the Nashville path forward is instructive for Boston. You wonder if this isn't kind of where the window starts to close for Boston because Nashville, they thought their window was, was just cracking open with all this stuff. So Kyle Turris gets his noxious contract extension and, and David Poyle 
he like he's desperate to finally win a cup so he's making moves he's trading kevin fiala for michael granland and they capped up pk suban to make room for matt duchene and all these changes that they that they made and ultimately there was just you know not all the moves were bad but they had no young talent coming through to beef up the roster and now they just they're kind of a shell of of who they were so the theme of these podcasts has been is the window open or closed and I wonder, Mark, is, do you think the window's still open for Boston? I, I certainly hope so. But like with Bruce Cassidy's uh, exit interviews today, because the team arrived in Boston, I believe early this morning, um, getting all settled back in at home with family and blah, blah, blah. But he had time to, to come out and do the, uh, the uh, uh, press conference. And he just, he mentioned that there was a lot of things that were going on uh, with injuries and so on and, and conditioning uh, concerns, especially with Pasternak and Kasha. Uh, he was, it sounded, uh, he didn't say it, but it sounded like he was disappointed in the way that those two, um, well, you, you obviously heard what happened, correct, Steve? No, sorry, I haven't. Well, um, before the, before they were entering the bubble in Toronto, uh, Pasternak and Kasha were held out because of international travel uh, for the two-week uh, quarantine. Uh, they broke their quarantine. They were out on, on, uh, north, in the north end of Boston, uh, I guess, ripping it up. And they were seen taking pictures at, and practicing on their own at a rink in Malden, Mass. And uh, so that kind of... Uh, put a wrench in the gears of uh, getting these guys up to speed. And, and they were obviously late arrivals into the bubble in Toronto, Kasha being the longer one. So uh, he, it looked to me in his press conference that he was a little uh, distraught about how they came in and how they were taking uh, this seriously. And, uh, and Pasternak was uh, pretty much injured throughout these playoffs and the participation that he actually showed. So, and, and Kasha was also uh, labeled as an um, uh, injury, I believe. So, yeah, it was just kind of a, a disappointing thing to go into the bubble and not being fully prepared. And uh, you definitely saw that in these in the playing rounds, uh, the round robin games. Uh, I mean, they went they went in as the first seed and came out as the fourth. And it was uh, as a long time diehard Bruins fan myself, it was it was very hard to watch because. Um, you know, you have a, a lengthy playoff that you're supposed to be involved in that as, as us fans thought they were from going as deep as last year. Um, and uh, they would just seem disinterested in those games and, and not playing to their full capabilities. And that kind of picked up a little bit more in the, in the uh, Carolina series and the, in the actual first round of the playoffs. And then it came to Tampa Bay when they just seemed like they were outmatched. I mean, they did win the first game in overtime, but then it was just a, it was just the, uh, the hurricane truck that just came and ran them over because they just didn't seem like they were fully involved in what they had to do. The mission was, you know, be there, do what they got to do and then get the hell out. It just seems so. I mean, that's just my opinion, but um, yeah, it's just, for me, they, as soon as they got in, a lot of these guys seemed like they checked out. The makeup of the team this season, it felt like it was so dependent on that top line, the perfection line, the Ratatouille line, whatever you want to call it. Those three fantastic players just absolutely destroying everyone. And then those guys also being on the power play as well, which was so prolific throughout this season. And it was a bit reminiscent of what the Tampa Bay Lightning were last season in that they were so top line heavy and then they get to the playoffs and they run into a team with a little bit more depth and a little bit more oomph and they just don't quite get over the hump. I, I, I do think that Boston had enough to be a cup contender, but it just seems like Tampa Bay pushed the right buttons and got the right mix on those depth lines and, and just overwhelmed them with depth. And the big bet that the Bruins made this season was Kasha. And I, I'm a big Kasha guy, but this was, you know, he's, he's constantly battling injuries and this season he really struggled to score. And in previous years, he has been an efficient shooter and he's been a productive five-on-five scorer, and he wasn't for Boston. And I wonder if, after everything that happened with him and Pasternak, has he become a pariah in Boston? 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's now the uh, a little polarizing uh, player, um, but that's that's what's going to happen when you when you come to Boston and you don't produce um, the trade deadline acquisition and not having at least a goal in the uh, you know dozen games that he appeared with the Boston Bruins from either the regular season to to these playoffs. Um, just wasn't it wasn't enough for myself or fans to really grasp onto. I do, I do, I did have the opportunity to re- to watch a ton of video on him when the trade happened, just to get more accustomed to the type of player he is and what he could bring to that second line alongside uh, centering David Krejci and um, and Jake DeBrusque on the left side. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that I saw positive that I thought that could happen uh, coming down the stretch after the trade deadline into the playoffs, but. Yeah, uh, it just it, it it just doesn't seem like that there was a much chemistry at all, and and so and Cassidy not willing to move uh, players around um, was just just not allowing the team to create anything secondary when it comes to point production was very frustrating to watch, and and he and Cassidy even said that today in his press conference that you know he, he's to blame on some of the coaching ideas or the roster that he put out there. Um, he questioned himself about it. So it's just, it, I don't know. It's just the whole thing just didn't seem right from the get go, but then coming down to the end, it was just, you know, it's one of those times that you just want to get over and get over it and move on. <laughs> so do you think Kasha has got one more year on his contract and then he's a restricted free agent? Is this a bet that they try to run back and, hope to find better chemistry and maybe they do a little bit more experimentation throughout the season or are they going to package him off and try to fill some different holes and then and then maybe it's free agency to fill that uh, depth scoring that they were sorely missing that's a great question steve because um he does have one more year and it and it, it, it all depends on where bruce wants to put him if he if he's going to be if if Cassidy's going to be that type of coach that wants to mix up his lines a little more aggressively, even even that top line with uh, with Bergeron, Marchand, and Pasternak, dropping Pasternak down to the second line to, cre- to possibly get a kick uh, with with uh, David Krejci and DeBrusque, and possibly put Kasha on the third line, that leaves a, a, a right wing spot open, obviously on the on the top line. Um, but it's, it's going to be tough to see where this team goes when it comes to making moves during this off season. Uh, this heavy, it's heavily rumored. I know that you've heard about this, that the cap is going to be flat for at least two to three years because of the COVID shutdown and, and the, and the fun and the revenue loss that this league has gone through. Um, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how Don Sweeney, uh, manages the cap and, and, addressing the need on the right side because uh, David Krejci has gone through, I, I can't even count how many right wingers, um, you know, and it just doesn't work. He doesn't seem happy. Uh, and they just don't seem to produce the way that he did when he had Lucic and Horton on that line back in, in the days when they won the Stanley cup or, or shortly before that. So, I don't know. I don't know what we could do for trades out there and so on. That's something that our team at blackandgoldhockey.com is going to figure out and, and try to throw some ideas out there. But as of right now, I can't think of anything that could fit right there that's going to stay under the cap because the Bruins are always up against it. When, it, when you're a competitive team in the NHL, you know that you know uh, you, you have minimal funds to uh, to to play with, and that's the luxury that the Bruins don't have right now. Even though that they do have, I think, 17 million, but you still have a lot of players that you have to lock up. Uh, Jake DeBrusque and, and Tory Krug uh, are probably the biggest ones. Matt Grizzlick also. Um, so it's it's just going to be really interesting what happens on that right side, and and the continued effort to find somebody that's going to fit there and be productive instead of the uh, the turnstile um, and trying to find the person that fits it. Now. Just to uh, touch back on your window, it's going to be interesting to see on on how this core moves forward. We're going to see um, possibly the last season of of uh, Zdeno Chara, and um, and Bergeron's getting older, Marchand's getting older, Krejci's getting older, and one more year. Uh, it's going to be interesting. But with that, with the whole cap talk that we just uh, explained a little while ago. 
Um, I think it's going to be heavily reliant on the young kids down in Providence that are, are knocking on the, uh, the door of, uh, of their NHL careers, most likely Jack Stadnika and, um, and Trent Frederick and, and Carson Kuhlman and these guys, obviously if Kuhlman sticks around uh, after this, but um, I mean, it's going to be a cap management thing. But I think that it's not going to address the need of, of being a heavier team and playing against the heavier clubs like uh, the St. Louis Blues in the past and obviously the, the second round with the Tampa Bay Lightning. So it's going to, it's going to be a, um, a whirlwind of, of decisions between Don Sweeney and his scouting staff on what we can actually do to get this team back on board and more competitive uh, in these later rounds of the playoffs. Because we know that the team can get it done in the regular season. We've seen that several times. But it's just uh, when you get to that pinnacle of uh, success and, and, and championship-worthy clubs, you really have to come with all levels of it. When you mentioned that Nathan Horton, Milan Lucic, David Krejci line that just absolutely ran people over for a few years there in the playoffs, that line was insane. And all I could think of was Josh Anderson's available. So I, I think that if you're looking for that, Nathan Horton-esque type trade target. I wonder if he's not the guy, although having been uh, kind of really squeezed by the Columbus Blue Jackets, I wonder if he'd be looking for a big payday. He's only a restricted free agent, but still he's, uh, he's inching closer to unrestricted free agency. And I wonder if that just, that wouldn't exceed the cap dollars that Boston has available uh, what what do you think? Is Josh Anderson a, a good answer there? I thoroughly like the player. Uh, he's a he's a power forward, can play the right side effectively, good along the boards, decent possession, gets in those dirty areas, um, net front presence. Uh, we we've seen it all from Josh, and he's, he he's, can be that that complete player. But staying healthy is the biggest thing for him right now. And and on a Bruins team where we need healthy players and we need to, to keep the chemistry train rolling. It's not a bad idea, but it's, it's one that I wouldn't look at right now uh, just for the pure fact of what he could demand um, if he was traded here uh, with a little bit of term and, and negotiation talks, uh, what he could command and, and, and the cap casualties at the other end, because if he comes in, somebody's going to have to go. So it should be interesting. Um, and if he does go, you could automatically put in Jake DeBrusque out of there. So now you're going to have to fill a hole. And I'm not saying Jake DeBrusque was anything special this year. He's kind of on the downtrend at all. But he's a young kid that could still learn the game and learn the fundamentals and be a better pro uh, soon, sooner rather than later. But uh, you're going to have to give up something to get somebody like Josh Anderson because he's going to bring you that 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 heavy game that a lot of teams are looking for. So he's going to be a he's going to be a, a commodity that uh, other clubs are going to look at too. Yeah, for sure. I think that he's going to be a hot commodity. I just wonder if the injuries that he's gone through don't put him into a really interesting and unique situation where maybe you get him both cheaper on the cap and in trade. Uh, than you might have otherwise. And the flip side of that being that we saw with Nathan Horton, how quickly these injuries can really stack up for a player. And, and suddenly you've given them a long-term deal and they're almost immediately a, uh, a complete write-off. Yeah. And that's something that we don't want uh, here when we're trying to move forward and keep that, uh, that, that window open of success for some of these core members that are still around from the 2011 Stanley cup. You know, it's just, it's, it's how this club is moving forward is his biggest concern right now. It, I just, I, I want to see Bergie, I know, get another cup. I want to see Marsh and, you know, just anybody that was around in, in the 011 uh, year, I'd like to see him get another one, but um Right now, it's more or less sustainability and uh, and and keeping that competitive drive. And and for me, it's gonna it's gonna need resources outside of the core that the Bruins currently have right now. And and it's I mean, I I do not want to be Don Sweeney right now, sitting you know sweating it out trying to figure this out with Cam Neely above your shoulders, going, "Hey, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do?" And then all of a sudden, you throw a water bottle, and then you know we're all done. 
Yeah, just looking at the teams that have had success in these playoffs, I think there's a few roster building lessons. We've touched on the Bruins not quite having the forward depth, but certainly they have the, the star forwards that you need to go far. I also think that they had the depth on defense. You look at Teams like Vegas, they've got Schmidt and Theodore, and Tampa's got Hedman and McDonough, and hell, like e- even the Islanders, who I, I, I don't think anyone still believes in. Certainly I don't, um, but they've they've shocked everyone. Uh, like they've got Pulak and Taves on defense, and even though I don't think anyone would consider those guys number one defensemen, they're definitely, you'd be a, in a very good spot if they're your number two. So if you've got two number twos, the, the, the point being, you need a, a couple of really strong defensemen to build around and basically roll out there for 50 minutes a night and just put out fires and make sure that the puck's getting up ice and, and nothing exceptionally bad is happening to you for 50 plus minutes a night. That's a huge advantage. And I think that like of the final eight teams, Vancouver's the only really outlier where they've only got Quinn Hughes, who you would label as that type of guy. And every other team's got those two defensemen they can build a pairing around and the Bruins had it with Krug and McAvoy but Krug's hitting unrestricted free agency and it it sure doesn't seem like they're gonna be able to get him back or if they do what's that cost gonna be I would do it just because you need to have those two solidified pairings and who cares what your cap situation looks like in five years because you've only got a couple more years to take advantage of Bergeron and Krejci and Marchand being uh, elite type guys. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Great points right there. And the one thing with the Krug narrative is, is, uh, you know, he's, he's a 50, 60, 70 point type of defenseman, transitional type of defenseman. Uh, But he, he, he makes a lot of mistakes in his defensive zone when it comes to coverage and, and, you know, and, being a smaller guy, I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a pit bull. He really is a pit bull, but there's, there's bigger guys that come into the crease area and literally push him around. But when he gets the puck, his, his, his possession's good. His transition's good. And when he and jumps in offensively, that is something that this Bruins team definitely needs. And, and the way that Bruce Cassidy and, and, and coaches from the past since like, since Char has been on the team, for 14 years it's always been one of those we have chara then we have a smaller uh defenseman that can transition to get the puck out quickly and uh it seems like it was chara mcavoy krug carlo you know and then obviously your, your third pairing was kind of a, a mix of uh of, of regulars and and seventh seventh defenseman that just needed to get in there on a rotation but um Nowadays, it's like after what happened with this, with the uh, the Tampa Bay series, a lot of Bruins fans are saying we need to get rid of them, don't sign them, uh, go for bigger guys, screw the points. I, I don't, I don't see that as a as a as a solid way of doing things. I think still think that you need to, you need to have uh, your your defense uh, pitch in. I'm not saying that they have to be, you know, your top line all the time and everything like that. You know, it's just they do have to pinch in, they do have to get some points and they had, you know, to show that they, uh, you know, to help out everybody else because, because the Bruins are basically relying on three people on the top line and there's no secondary scoring. You have to get it from somewhere else. And why not come in from a defensive crew that can put the puck in the net or can make plays on the power play. But obviously that didn't happen in these playoffs. So it should be interesting how they go. Do, I mean, do they change things up and get bigger bodies in there that aren't going to pinch in offensively, that don't transition very well, but not going to be pushed around in front of the crease? That remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean, you saw it on the overtime winner in, in Game 5. Pat Maroon sets himself up in front of the net and the pucks in the net, right? There's a, there's a certain element to that where you definitely want those bigger bodies. And, and we saw it from what the blues had with their defense core like other than vince dunn it was just a bunch of condors they have had on defense for the last couple of seasons and that's just an absolute gauntlet to try to go through uh mark i'm wondering if i can pitch a few ideas out at you if they do fail to come to terms with krug and and they're trying to kind of fill in the gaps 
Um, if you hit the one that I'm thinking about, I'm sending you a beer. Okay, sounds good. Um, headlining TSN's trade bait list, you've got Oliver Ekman Larson. And to me, I don't know how you commit to a guy with that much money and that much term when you weren't willing to do it with Krug. But like, it'd be such a slap in the face to your fans to the player like it would it would be very stark to see that happen but he does fit that bigger body mold that maybe they would be looking to transition to yeah i like uh oel too um uh he could uh he's he's let me see he's done with his elc so he's on his first professional contract correct he is in he has just completed year one of an eight-year contract with a no-movement clause at 8.25 million AAV. Oof. Right? Oh, that's a heavy price. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like the player. I like the idea and everything. And I like the way that you're, you're going with this is, is he could be that type of player that doesn't always get pushed around. Very defensive, responsible, and, and can transition and has a good puck possession. But the uh, the cap for me is just another avenue that I always look at and just like oh geez that's that's a that's a heavy one and what could go back in in a in a trade too because obviously with uh, that much term left it's not going to be it's not going to be a one for one. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, ultimately, I don't think that they would quite be able to pull that off. Like I just think that you're you're spending half of your cap space on that one position and they have more holes than that. I think they can take care of all the business that they would like to accomplish. Even giving Krug that type of money, I just don't know if there's an appetite to commit that type of term uh, in Boston. Um, if you don't want to commit money, but you do want that offensive spark plug type defenseman, then it sure seems like Philly's desperate to get rid of Shane Gostisbehere, who has a couple of years left at four and a half million which would basically just kick the can down the road on a similar price as what they had been giving Krug the past few seasons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Shane's a, a solid defenseman. Um, he's got some really good attributes, but this, I, I don't know if it was just because of the, the, the whole scenario this year and the return to play and so on, but I didn't really see much of him in any of these series that I've been watching and, and with the break, I'll tell you, Steve, that um, I've been watching just a ton of hockey because I just feel like a sponge that I just need to get absorbed as much as I can before the next season. But um, so I've been watching a lot of the Philly games and I just really haven't seen a lot from him. But the potential is definitely there for him to be better, maybe even uh, um, uh, some new surroundings, new teammates. Uh, who knows, you know? But that's a solid suggestion. Uh, very mobile. I really do like that that option of uh, of having him uh, being that quarterback and so on. What I like about Shane is um, is he he's doesn't look he doesn't look to make a like a stretch pass or or a pass in the neutral zone. He skates with his head up and creates that lane. And that's, uh, that's something that I, I really find when I, when I look and scout, like some, some defensemen, younger guys, it's, it's, uh, are they gliding with the head up trying to look for somebody to outlet to or, or they create in the lane? Yeah, I'm, I'm still a gossip hair believer, but the folks in Philly aren't like, there's a reason you haven't seen him. It's because he's been getting scratched. So <laughs> it just, it, he's, he's highly available. There's a reason he's on the uh, trade bait board. I think he's been there for a couple of years. Philly seems like they are done with him. And I wonder if there's not a chance to buy low and you wouldn't have to give up much and you could slide them right into that, uh, that salary spot they've already been using. And he's, he's not Krug, but he could replicate a lot of what Krug offered you. Yeah. And, and, and possibly that the Bruins would probably go for something like that because it's not in the division too. So you always think about stuff like that. Okay. Here's, here's another option. And I don't know if they have the picks or quite the, the money or the appetite, but wouldn't it just be delicious if they totally fucked with the lightning and fired off an offer sheet for Mikhail Sergachev? 
I like Sergi too. I, I think he's a he's a good defenseman, um, young enough to to mold into any team that he possibly could go to, if uh, Frank's trade bait is is actually correct and they they do want to possibly move on from him and and create assets coming back because the Tampa Bay Lightning too are going to be a, 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 a up to the cap team this season and they're probably going to have to dump some salary to to uh, to stay under the league mandated cap so. Uh, that should be interesting, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, you just you, those are the types of players you want to add to your defensive core for the future, not just the win now scenario. Um, yeah, that would be so that would be so awesome too to do that. Yeah, to be clear, he Sergachev isn't on the TSN trade bait list. This is one that I just made up myself. But basically, any team with any sort of cap space, I'm dreaming up scenarios where they're firing off offer sheets because the Lightning are in a desperate situation. And I'm almost certain that they're going to navigate their way through it because they have been for like the past three seasons. And they they always find a way to troll their RFAs and get them under palatable bridge deals. And they're probably going to do it with Sorelli and Sergachev and Chernak again. And they're going to be a contender again next season. But my God, the Bruins, if they just, they move on from Krug and they use that salary space and, and make basically an unmatchable offer sheet to Sergachev. Wouldn't that just be, that would be fireworks. I, I would be on cloud nine for like a week and I'm not even a Bruins fan. <laughs> I'd certainly be happy. Definitely. And I'd send you another beer just for that thought. <laughs> but uh, um, hey, I got a question for you, Steve. Do you, re- do you think that there is going to be more offer sheets this year because of what's going on with the cap and it's, it's going to be flat? No, I, I don't. More- I don't at oh, okay. all. Like, I think the the big reason that we don't see offer sheets, there's just like, there's absolutely no appetite to screw over your fellow GM. Kevin Lowe and Brian Burke almost booked a barn and got into a fight over a single offer sheet, the one that the Ducks came out ahead on. So I don't even know why they were that upset about it. Just like, it, it just seems like there's no appetite for it. Like you look at the trades that have already happened in this, weird limbo where there's still games going on but we're in the off season now and you've got these teams that are in absolutely desperate cap situations just looking to unload players and they're getting real value in return for those players jake allen fetches a third rounder goalies almost never fetch anything in trades so to get a third rounder and and get completely out of the contract is fantastic for the blues and the leafs got a first rounder and a good prospect for Kapanen. And those are situations where you'd be like, like if I was in my fantasy league, I'd be like, well, you have to give away players. You're in a desperate cap situation. Here's this boat anchor that I'm going to throw you. I'll give you some meaningless pick and give me that good player and completely try to screw them over because I'm predatory that way. But that's not how these GMs necessarily look at it. They're they're much more in it to try to find that win-win scenario. And with an RFA, I think that they're an offer sheet. There is a win-win. It just isn't seen that way because you're forcing the situation upon the other GM where they have to decide. Like it, It's basically like, hey, this is the trade. You can either accept it or reject it, but there's no negotiation. And I don't think that the GMs like that. Yeah, and and wasn't it the the only was it the only office sheet last year was was Carolina and Montreal when they yeah, were going after Aho? Yeah, it was like the first offer sheet in ten years. The last time I oh my can god was it Shea Weber? Happening. Yeah, like Shea Weber, and then oh. there was the uh, there was the San Jose dual offer sheets for Nicholas Jalmerson and Anti Niemi, and Chicago that's, didn't end up matching for Niemi. So that's right. Like, that's right. And that's like the last time that we've really seen those. They're they're very rare. So I'd love to see it because it's just, it's explosive and it's a tool in the toolbox. And why even have them as possible options if you're not going to use them? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But the, in my opinion, when you do the whole office sheet thing, it's like, it all depends on what the scenario is, but man, it's like, if you got to be really willing to, to go for it, if you want to give up potentially 
what was it three first rounders in a row and then some seconds and so on it depends on like the 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 whole situation like i said but that's that's a heavy price on your on replenishing any prospects that you want to get back into your in your farm system that's more more of a more aligned to me that's addressing a win now situation and not building for the future but that's just my opinion yeah well you look at where the offer sheet compensation is at and i think if you fired off an offer sheet for just under six and a half million or something like that you only have to give up a first and a third so you could do that for sergachev and that's almost certainly more than what the lightning would be capable of matching so for a lot of teams I'm dreaming up these scenarios where you do the dual offer sheet thing like San Jose did to Chicago and Tampa Bay is probably only going to be able to match one of them. And it's just figuring out which player you want. And the, the flip side of it is also you have to get the player to sign that. So they have to agree. They want to move and they want to actually become part of your team. And I think that part of the only reason that Ajo signed the offer sheet with Montreal is that it was kind of it was very player friendly in a certain sense the term that he got and so ultimately it was like Caroline is definitely going to match this thing so I'm sick and tired of negotiating with them here's the terms that I want sign me to this thing they're going to match it and we'll all move on it's amazing how all that shit works (laughs) yeah absolutely you you know I I don't think that I would have the temperament or the patience to be able to be either an agent or in a front office or let alone a player. Like I would, I would be slighted by every single little thing. I would be so petty. I would move on from every single team because of perceived slights. Yeah, it sounds like it. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm just a very bitter small man and I'm trying to work on being better at that. And so I I don't think that the perspective necessarily comes, uh, comes until later in your career. And so these players, like, I think they're just, they'd rather kind of stay where they are. So I don't know if you could necessarily get Sergachev to sign one of those, but I definitely think that if you offered over 6 million to him AAV, that's probably more than what Tampa Bay is going to be able to offer him. So there's an opportunity there. And honestly, the the compensation of a first and a third wouldn't be onerous for a team that fancies themselves a cup contender. Yeah, that's a luxury that Bruins don't have right now with, with getting rid of the David Backus contract and, and, and acquiring Kasha was they lost that first rounder. Right, but it would be next year's first rounder. So, oh, that's right. That's right. I'm sorry. So, in a sense, you can you almost you kind of treat the Kasha acquisition as kind of a, a an offer sheet that they just ultimately didn't have to sign the guy to. It was better to to negotiate a trade, and we saw it with Tampa Bay last season when they when it came time to we have to cut salary, they were willing to trade for another team's first rounder. So in a sense, Vancouver offer sheeted JT Miller without having to go through the player, they had to go through the team instead. And I think that there's a little bit more appetite to do that because again, players don't like to move their stuff. So they're more liable to just negotiate with their team and GMs are more liable to negotiate with other GMs. Interesting. But uh, my last option for you is if uh, is an unrestricted free agent option, and that's TJ Brody. If he he can give you seventy five percent of what Tory Krug was offensively, and maybe he gives you a little bit more defensively, and he comes in cheaper. I wonder if that's non option that they would kick tires on, or maybe as a as a Chara replacement because we haven't really talked about Chara, but. Uh, other than the fact that he might retire. Yeah, yeah, I like the Brody idea uh, and the way that he plays both sides of the puck. Um, yeah, he's a mobile guy too, likes to get into it. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I like that idea. Um, I really do want to get somebody that's that's just, you know, like to, I, to me, Tori is just totally an offensive defenseman when we need honestly is just some a person that's got, like, got the all-around package that could still be a, a nuisance when when uh, opponents come into the defensive zone but also 
create an opportunity to to make a turnover and a quick transition and, and possibly jump in as as layers get created through the offensive zone into uh no, i'm sorry into the neutral zone into the offensive zone and 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 be a threat a uh, scoring threat which we definitely need the Bruins definitely need more shots and more quality shots i don't think that they they really uh showed what they could actually do against a bigger goaltender like uh, Vasilevsky, uh, who was, was just outstanding. His, his angles and the way he moves and so on, they're just, it's poetry in motion, actually. But if you can get him moving side to side, we saw it a couple times with Pasternak shots when he was in Ovechkin's uh, office, uh, that he was just getting beat, even though that the, the puck went, uh, hit the glass. But you could definitely see the net was, was fully open. But yeah, I think that that side-to-side movement is – that's the only way you're beating goalies these days. You're not beating them clean from distance. It's just it, – it doesn't happen anymore. It's, it's layers and it's movement and it's fast, 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 fast. Unless you're Ovechkin just absolutely hammering the crap out of the puck, it's not too often you're getting those, those one-shot scores from distance. It's, it's got to be off movement. And certainly having more smart, fast playmakers throughout the lineup is, is how you generate that stuff. Um, I take it that I don't have a beer coming my way. Uh, so who, who was your target to replace Krug if they can't get him? Well, this is, it's kind of interesting. And it's not my idea. It was actually a listener of the Black and Gold Hockey podcast. Um, he reached out to us and said, uh, what about this player? And I found it intriguing because when I did my, my homework on this player, I kind of thought it was pretty much the same as Tory Krug. And if you're going to walk away from that, I, I obviously we, we've been talking uh, at nauseum about getting a, um, a defensive, a defenseman that can move and still be uh, responsible. But I'm on, I'm, I'm really on the board with the way that, uh, Trevor Van Reems like moves and quarterbacks a power play, uses the half wall, the bumper position, and uh, can even get down low as the goal line to still look and create opportunities. So that's something I've been flirting around with with, with this listener's idea. I wish I get, I wish I knew his name because I give him credit, but I don't remember. But um, that's something that if they want to get somebody like that back into the role might not be so expensive. Um, that might be something that they look at, but I, I, I like the idea and, and I'm kind of intrigued about it, but uh, it's also this, um, I'm also not ready for the narrative because Boston can be such a, a, a trash city sometimes when your team's not doing good. So if you get, if, if you let Tory Krug walk and you bring in somebody just like him, the narrative is just going to change the negative and, and it's just going to be a, a real dumpster fire until this player actually gets in there and shows what he can do. And, and if he's responsible defensively and can still put the puck in the net and, and serve up those apples, uh, then he's going to be a hero. But until then it remains to be seen, but I do like the idea of, of uh, Trevor Van Reems. Like, and he also went to uh, UNH. So it was only about 20 minutes away from me. So. Well, you got to bring those Northeast guys home. Um, I'm yeah. not so sure. <laughs> um, I'm not so sure that I would buy TVR as more than a third pairing type guy, but I also might have said the same thing about Krug when he was breaking in. So plausible, but uh, it, it obviously it wasn't the first option that I considered. Right. Yeah. It's just it's something that is it's 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 interesting. I t- I like to take some of the uh, the. Readers and the listeners' ideas, and kind of like ponder them a little bit, or send it down to the crew of 26 writers that we have, and say, "What do you guys think about this? Is this an idea for an article, or is you know, just a, a little bit of troubleshooting and see where we can go from there?" But I, I found it a little bit intriguing. If you want to get a player that's like him, regardless of what line he's actually he would play on, so it's going to be an interesting off season. Let's put it that way. No doubt. Uh, one of the things I've been batting around the notion of is that Tuka Rask might retire a year early because it was well documented that he's planning on retiring after his contract ends at the end of next season. And I know he's due a lot of money, but also we might be looking at another bubble-ish type regular season where you 
can't really be with your family that much or or anything like that and justifiably he left the bubble when family came calling that's the most important thing so he did what he felt was right and you know I, I completely support that decision I know not all folks did but um I don't think it's worth litigating that that part of it I just wonder that if we're looking at another bubble type season if he pulls pin and retires early that's more cap space but I don't think they necessarily would know that they're going to have that cap space and I wonder the other roster building thing that we've seen from these playoffs is you need two goalies and and the Bruins have benefited from having two fantastic goalies these past few years what do you do to replace a guy like Rask or do you think I'm even on the right track here yeah I mean you're definitely hitting on some valid points, Steve. Um, you know, this the bubble thing seemed didn't seem to be Tuka's thing, um, which is respected. You know, they the the two sides, the players' union and and the players, obviously got, got together with the league and said, "Listen, if if our players are not, you know, into this, they have the right to leave without any contractual, uh, you know." down uh, uh, you know without anything happening to their contract it, they don't look down on them penalty it's just a decision that they that they make and and you know it should be respected and, and obviously it's, it's for family which is that comes first like you said but if they do go into another uh, bubble system like they're talking about right now because I think this, the league needs to uh, do the due diligence and talk about this now before the vaccine comes out. And hopefully that happens soon because, and I know owners are very adamant on getting this vaccine as soon as possible to get asses in the seats and, and create some more revenue for them because they're losing millions and millions uh, all the time. That, that could be a situation where Tuki is kind of forced into a, into a corner and says, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, but I also think that uh, in, in any other situation, uh, he would want to obligate his contract because, uh, you know, he's in his, uh, I think, early 30s, 33, 34 years old, um, you know, and continue to to work on that nest egg of retirement and, um, and you know, obligate his last year of, of uh, service. But, I mean, it's all on him. Um, it was good to have the 1A, 1B. It seemed to work. I mean, it, I mean, you know, with Jennings worthy and, and possibly Vizina, a winner in Tukaras. So it's just, it's just sad to see that the, this whole thing has really put a, a wrench in, in the goaltending tandem. Uh, obviously not too thrilled about how Halak played. Uh, the glove hand was by far um, AHL level. He really, really frustrated me in a lot of situations where he could have caught the, a lot of that stuff and just went right over his glove. But um there's nobody in the system right now that I believe can can come in and 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 recoup any of that space. I think that uh, Dan Vladesh is is a, a solid piece uh, in the works, but I think he needs another full season down in the AHL. Jeremy Swayman is a, a assigned Hockey East um, player out of the University of Maine. He's got a lot of promise. He saw a ton of rubber because Maine wasn't a very highly recruited um, club. So he'll be ready for some AHL. And I think that those guys are the future. But there's a lot of people that I hear from that think that, you know, maybe we should get another veteran and not go so young, um, you know, like Marc-Andre Fleury. His name has been floated around. Then there's some, there's some others that I just – I had it on the tip of my tongue. I can't remember right now that could be available too. Yeah, I think that the goalie musical chairs this summer is going to be obscene. We've already seen it start with Jake Allen getting traded to Montreal, and I think it's just going to continue spiraling from there. Um, Mark, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time and coming on the pod. Is there anything that you would like to plug before we get out of here? Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at black at black pod, and please check out our our team of twenty six writers. We have a podcast uh, network that we're building. You can find all that information over at blackandgoldhockey.com.
Thank you so much, Steve, for having me on and, and uh, definitely get in touch with me some other time and, and uh, maybe next season to begin, we'll do a little discussion on expectations of a 2021 campaign. Yeah, or maybe we'll have the uh, we'll have a big Bruins trade to uh, to to break down or something like that. That would be uh, exciting. Yeah, absolutely. That would be kind of cool to kind of shake things up and see where we're going forward. Right on. Well, I'm gonna let you go. This was a lot of fun, and uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Take care, bud. All right, everyone. That is our show. Stick tap to Mark Allred from the Black and Gold Hockey and Black and Gold Hockey Pod for coming on the podcast. You can follow him at Black and Gold 277 on Twitter and check out his work. It's a fantastic resource for Bruins insights. And I think that this summer could be one of those summers where you're going to want to catch up and find out if Tori Krug's gone, who's going to be that number one uh, power play type defenseman for that team. There's a lot to consider here. If you like the show, please like, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for tuning in.